Welcome back to the Class Divide podcast. I'm Curtis James and this is Reaction Episode 4. If you haven't already listened to the main episode 4, Losing Our School, I suggest you do before continuing with this one. We have something a little bit different this week. In the first half, you're going to hear me in conversation with Ryan, one of Carly's brothers, who went to Stanley Deason School and is featured throughout the series. In the second half, I'll be with Carly Goldsmith to get her thoughts on the episode. So let's begin with Ryan. We just heard episode 4, and I asked him how it felt to listen to all of the stories about the closure of his old school. Very angry, frustrated, um, still cooling down a little bit now, really, after listening to it. It was uh, listening to the people from the higher end and, and actually in amongst it, like the teachers and the head teachers, and seeing what actually was going on behind the scenes at Stanley Decent School is shocking. Mm. You know, it, I'm actually welling up a little bit at the minute. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it brings a lot back to me. Yeah, yeah, and um, also just cannot get my head around the fact that there is there is there, that school. I mean, it's the first time I've really thought about it properly, and just thought, oh, what? there's not a school within a three, four mile radius of uh, of White Oak, mm. and uh, I can't imagine what it's doing to these people and these young children and today. And it's really made me reflect on my time as a, as a student. Yeah, yeah, and you were there sort of in the nineties, weren't you? I left in ninety nine. Yeah, so. Yeah, was it there five years? Yeah, so yeah, probably from ninety no ninety five ninety four till ninety nine. So you would have been there around the time that some of those people in the in episode four they were talking about that sort of period where you know that that stat that I think you were like what and I, I definitely when I realised it was like about the head teachers you know one head teacher for twenty years, years and then ten around ten over ten years I mean it's nuts it's it's madness I just. Uh, at the minute, I, I, I'm feeling quite sorry for the, the the people who are actually going through what they're going through at the minute, trying to get up in the mornings at them sort of times to get to school, do a whole day, get yourself back home. You know, especially with a lot of people's backgrounds and stuff. I mean, it must be it must be soul destroying. It really must be. And I know I've, I've interviewed you already about your experience, but did that listening to that did it remind you of anything else that? you sort of remembered from your experience in being at that school for five years? I remember five days before I left school and we got told to leave five days before because they didn't want any misdemeanours going on. You know, so we didn't even get a chance to say bye to a, a, a lot of people. And silly stuff. And Stanley Decent meant saying to us, you know, I mean, it, it, we used to channel all our stuff through sport. You know, like that, because we, 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 we had a really good sports team football-wise, cricket-wise, at Stanley Decent for my age group. And going out there and beating these other schools, not let it's any fault of theirs, because it's only what they've heard and what they've what their people, mums and dads have told them. But we used to, by, by beating them at football or beating them at cricket, used to make us feel like our school was worth, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was sort of how we approached it. But you, over these last few weeks of listening to some of this stuff, I mean, it is absolutely crazy what, what's going on. It's, yeah, it's sort of a mixture of anger-inducing. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's, it is, to, to, and also, you know, we're telling a story from like twenty, thirty years ago, and yet here we are now in twenty twenty-three, and it's still really bad. Still the same, and all the money that's gone on. So you, all these parents spending all that money to get their kids to these other schools, which some of them are no better. Some of them are no better. Some mm. of them are, mm. but surely that could have helped towards making Stanley Decent a safe and sustainable school for children in this area, you know? Mm-hmm. I just... Uh, I, and just hearing some of them, what she's saying about the, 
the school of education that the, the people higher up saying these children and you know they're basically worthless you know so what are we trying to fix this school for let's get it shut as quick as possible sort of thing I, I just, I just can't, I can't get my head around it at the minute because listening to that fourth episode has made me uh, a little bit boiling up inside, you know. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to get my words out a little bit. That's all right. That's all right. Can you? I mean, just sort of going back to the point where the school closed because you'd obviously left by then. But do you remember what it was like in the community? Because Carly was campaigning, wasn't she, around that time? Yeah. And I know. I mean, do you remember what it felt like in the community when the school actually did close? Um, I can't really put my finger on remembering what it felt like, um, but the, I did notice a lot of people were dispersed. You know, the whole area had gone to a, a bit dead. You know, because obviously, like you say, these children were travelling to school, not getting home till fives or fives in the evenings. By the time they got home, it was dinner, mm. and you had to be in sort of thing. The, the place died. The place died a slow death. Mm. You know, mm. and. To hear other people's perception of children from Stanley Decent and from the Whitehawk area is it, it, so far beyond where where we're living today, mm. you know, and, and how things should be. And the people at the top who are doing all this with these private schools and the money and the funding and the, and, and the, and the, the stuff they got, the facilities, and, and then what have these people got? I mean, I just can't see how someone can look, look at a person any different to that person to that person. You can actually just crap on that one, and but this one's going places, you know. I just, I, I just, I can't, I can't give out. And obviously, it goes a lot higher than that. Mm. It goes a lot, lot higher than that. Which mm. obviously, mm. I, I don't want to get too out, out of frustration. But uh, what chance has anyone else have got of upsetting the apple card car if, if if chances are limited? But other people are given that opportunity. I, I don't get how you judge a kid to a kid like that. Mm. I really don't. It's just, it's, it's frustrating. And that that was the point. I'm, I, I don't think you've heard episode three yet, but that's the point that I was trying to get across in that. That like you, your brothers, and Carly all growing up in the same home, and the big difference was you went to different schools. Yeah, that, and the difference that made to your lives. Oh, it's, it's like it's huge. Just, it, 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 what what Carly to us is. Uh, I mean, I think Carly gets upset by it sometimes because we look at her differently now. Do you know, we and, and not not out of choice. It's just because what Carly did and Carly achieved, and and we didn't. We, I don't know. So we're sort of looking up to someone all the time, and so no, and how great she is, and how much I love her, and that sort of stuff. But from her side of things, where it's took her and what she's seen, I believe that maybe if she could go back, she probably would have went with us, because mm-hmm. it, it, she's probably going to spend the rest of her life now. Um, campaigning for all for all for us children, which benefits us a lot. But I don't think Carly really liked that aspect of uh, of being at a private school at all. Yeah. And I, when I said that, I didn't mean to suggest that you haven't achieved anything. No, That's no, yeah, yeah. Saying. But you know, but you know what? It's limited choices, if anything. Well, know. I knew I was going to. I, I knew from when I was fourteen years old that like, I was going to be on the building. I, I, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I went to work experience at fifteen, and I never. That was it. I only went back from my GCSEs after that. Mm. I stayed tiling, and uh, yeah, I've got a good, successful business. And there's, there's but the the other side of things are like, mentally, um, these things come back to haunt you. Yeah. And uh, I think because I'm just pushing forty now, uh, it, I started to care for other people rather than care for myself. You know, and it, and you're seeing all these people and what's happening to them, and I just can't understand it. I just cannot get it into my head. Look, these people are just left here to rot. You know, basically, you're going nowhere. You're never going to get a walk. A lot. It's it's sad. It's it's sad. It's heartbreaking. 
It yeah. really is. Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. And the stigma stuff, you mentioned that, the stuff in that report. I mean, I remember when I got hold of a copy of that report and sort of looked through it for the first time. I, I, I sort of couldn't believe what I was reading. I was sort of looking at it going... Is this made up? Has this been sort of made up to try and just force the school to close? Yeah, that's... I mean, no, I mean, I'm not suggesting the researchers have made that stuff up. I'm not, not saying that. But it, it seems so bad and so negative that it feels like it's made up. Well, it was like White Hawk v. The World and stuff like that. And you think, are, are actually grown-up adult human beings actually looking and down on children like that? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 and, and obviously they have been for 50, 60 years, you know, yeah. and, and pushing yeah. you to one side. And it's really hard to shake that stuff off. You know, like I think we definitely spoke when I interviewed you about that. You never, you never let go of that feeling, that sense that people are looking down on you. Always. Well, if I go to a job and I price up a job now and they go, hello, mate, where were you from? I say it now because I'm, you know, I'm committed to the cause, you know. But back then, when I was starting out on that and you've got to say, from wild straight away, you're thinking, is this person going to want me in their house? Do you know, and, and I had I, I had one not not so, so recently, so say three four years ago, I went to a, a friend's house who was married to a police officer, and I got to the house to do the to, to do a job, and once she told him my name, she wouldn't let me in the house to do the job. Do you know? And that was a police officer, right? You know, and wow. and, and and to me, and I'm like 33 at the time, and I was thinking, I've known the boy for. Since we used to play football, we used to go Dorothy String, we used to play against each other, play for the same team on a Sunday. And his own wife, you know, refused me entry to her house because of my name and the wild stigma and because of what they'd heard, you know. And it's, uh, and I, I just think, I just push it all to one side that I have done for all my life. It just goes out the window and I'll get on with what I'm doing. But now it's come, it's coming to the point of where I feel like I could help fight this this sort of stuff um, you know and, and do what I can for people around mm-hmm. even though I always have and I've always take the young lads out of here to come and work or t- you know, all, all the time as much as they want to come I'll mm-hmm. take them mm-hmm. but uh, it, it, it just gets to me I, I don't see how we can't get a nice school up there with a bit of funding you know get, get, get the community back on track get the school going again like it was before these people shot it down in 2005 mm-hmm. it seemed like it was on the right road so why why if it was worse five six years before that and it slowly get why did that school close it, it did feel like you know i mean it, obviously there's a lot of bits i had to not include in the program yeah. but it really felt from the whole load of people i interviewed about the background and what was going on then that and i mentioned that thing about people being embarrassed like the local authority got embarrassed yeah and we just got to shut it down even though like as we heard from uh, yeah, Andy yeah, Andy, yeah, um the, they had the best year for ages, you know, not just in Stanley D, on just in Comart, but also Van Dien was doing really well, despite all those parents, those middle class parents that you mentioned, who were going, oh, we don't want those kids from Whitehall coming in. Yeah, it's, and it's it, it, it's totally shocking, and you just think none of these people have probably even met a child from Whitehall. You know, they they they've never been into Stanley Decent School, and it looks like to me that from them perceptions have been taken on board by a school of education by by higher people up in the government. And, and and just taken as gospel, and that's that. That's what these these children. I heard things in there like these children ain't right. You know, you got no chance. You got this. You know, you got. I, I just cannot believe adults are actually uh, are doing that to, to mm-hmm. children. And I think the divide between as we talk about the private schools and, and the state schools, they want that divide. 
Hmm. They need hmm. that divide because because that, th- that will mean at some point, hundred years down the line, that someone from a state school might have a chance of getting in power or might have a chance of running things fairly for the people who, who live for the ninety percent of us who live this life. Yeah. You know, hmm. rather than the top ten percent who take control of everything, everyone out of a private school runs everything, runs it. No, that's the fear. That's why. It would, that's why, in my eyes, it'd be very, very difficult to ever change it because they want that middle bit, middle ground. So they're on top. You're on the hill. You know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we will continue. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, good. Yeah. Like, you know, you can't sort of hear all that stuff, can you? And go, oh, I'm just going to sit back and yeah. Well, do what's going to happen? Yeah. Well, you've made me think, and and my sisters made me think over the last few months that. You know what am I going to do uh, as a as a working man who's just got to go to work every day? But there is things you can do. There is changes you can make, and there's things you can do, and mm-hmm. and, that, and that goes for everyone in this estate. Yeah, and much and much what like you know because for me it's it's like actually it's the wider city that has got to make some changes, and one of the changes it's got to make is this perception it has of all the people from a place like this. It's like, do you know anyone from here? Do you know anyone that's grown up on a council estate? Learn about it. Have some realisations that not everyone on a council estate is a horrible person or stupid or not able to do good stuff. Or, you know, there's a whole mix of different people living in this area in the same way there will be in the centre of town. That's exactly that. So there's, there's there's a lot that needs to be done across the city regarding that perception and also sort of thinking about the advantages that you might have if you live in the centre of town and how they might disadvantage other people. But that is definitely put there for them in the first place. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it ain't like it's just happened. It, you know, that, that, that system has been set up to go that way. And that, and and that's what needs to change because I, I I just even children there children and their perception of someone from Whitehall I mean they can have only have heard that from their parents and conversations and stuff like mm-hmm. I mean it's horrible it really is it's disgraceful behaviour well I'm sorry I put you through listening to that because <laughs> you know I was, I was just saying um, in what well, we were saying in in the reaction episode for episode three you know. These are like at times quite harrowing to listen to, but they're so important to share. And you are doing something. The fact that you let me interview you and you've come and recorded this w- with me today—that's more than a lot of people are doing to try yeah. and fix this stuff. But when know. I walked in here, but after listening to that, yeah, I'm, I'm literally up here at the minute. I'm, 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 I'm at the end of my tether really at, at the minute. Obviously, mm. I'll calm down, but I'm just, just thinking of all that stuff and thinking of all the disadvantages and all the children. I mean, it, it, it's just. They need to be. They need to be shot down, you know. And and, and people like yourself, Carly, coming in doing it, and, and the way you, things you're trying to do, mm. you know, is massively overdue. One of the things that's interesting about the closure of Coma, as it was then, is that. It very much feels to me like what the local authority thought was you'd shut the school and then essentially the problem would disappear. And I think to some extent it did. The children were dispersed into other schools. They weren't ever picked out as a population in terms of what their outcomes were like and they weren't tracked over time. So they, that, that, you know, so, so at least half of their, I think half of the reason why they maybe shut the school worked out for them which is you then lose that group of kids in a more general school population but I think probably what they didn't consider or maybe they did consider and and they just decided that it was worth it that it would cause long-term problems and I and I'm not sure 
how much planning was done in order to address what would be the long-term problems for a community without a school. Um, and it's interesting because we were invited to attend and meet a, a, a half-day conference that was run by Brighton Hove City Council, the, the education department, um, a couple of weeks ago that looked at what's being done currently in the city to address disadvantage. It was great that we got an invitation to that, um, and I think it was really positive that we were in the room. Um, but I think some of the things that I saw on that day really made me think about this issue of, okay, so... There are all of these strategies, there are all of these different ways of working, there are all of these efforts to try to narrow the gap. But what does it mean in a community without a secondary school? And and these are just a couple of the thoughts that, that I had. So obviously at the end of episode four, you hear about the buses. And obviously transport is a huge issue. And particularly, I suppose, given the time lag between when you recorded those interviews, Curtis, and the current issue now in terms of cost of living and how people's incomes are being squeezed and how it's getting harder and harder and harder for, for those families who have to pay to get their kids to secondary school to actually be able to afford those journeys. Now, there, there is no um, clear and obvious uh, solution to this problem. I mean, we have pushed for there to be free school travel for children in our community because there are no walkable or cyclable routes to the local schools. And we've come up against a lot of obstacles or essentially this this the idea that, yes, that would be a fantastic thing to be able to do, but it is in some way a luxury item given the current context of the cuts. But actually, we would argue that children legally have to be in school. And so getting them to school is not a luxury item. Um, and if you're forcing people in the poorest communities to have to bear the cost of that, then really you should be doing something about it, something a bit more um, active than just saying, well, that would be a nice to have. You know, from our point of view, it's not a nice to have. It, it's something that is absolutely crucial because for every day lost in education because of the inability to pay for a bus, the further behind our kids potentially could slip. And also, if you put that in the context of difficulties our families would have had around homeschooling, all of disruption of COVID, you know, every day that they should be, you know, can be in school, they should be in school. Um, and so... I think the bus issue is far more urgent than anybody is really kind of acknowledging. And that's really frustrating. The other thing I think is there was a lot of discussion around how it's important for pupils that schools have a connection to their communities. And I know that when we read the draft disadvantage strategy, this was something that we commented on, which was, OK, that's all very well and good. But A, how are you actually going to do that just for any school? Like, what are the strategies and approaches and the ways in which a school can connect to the people who live um, in its neighbourhood, in its area, or the, or the community of pupils that attend your school? And I don't think that that's particularly clear how schools can do that. But I think it's particularly unclear how schools can do that when actually the school that you attend is three miles away from the place that you live. Um, and I just think that this is not something that's ever really, again, been acknowledged or addressed. And I think people get a bit squeamish when you say to them, well, you know we're in this situation because you closed the school. <laughs> it's kind of like they don't want to be reminded of the fact that that's what happened and that these are some of the longer-term implications of those decisions. They kind of want to almost pretend like there was never a school in the community. Um, and I think every time we've asked people, well, how do you suggest that the school that the majority of the children go to connect or understand the issues that the community here faces there's sort of a bit of a deafening silence because people don't actually know what schools can practically do. 
to develop those relationships and develop those connections that essentially they are saying are very important. The other thing I think that's you know, quite shocking was, you know, I know that I read the report that is talked about in the podcast and I found it really shocking to read it. But I think the way in which you brought it to life with the voices of children was, I kind of had a very visceral reaction to it. Um, And I think a lot of people who are from working class communities and working class neighbourhoods, doesn't matter whereabouts they are, will have a similar response to mine. But also they'll kind of know that they sort of knew this all along. (laughs) You know, you're sort of confirming something that a lot of people suspect. And I think that that's another thing that's actually not being addressed. If you've got a, a children who are coming from a, a poor and working class community, going into schools that aren't part of their community, you're essentially, from the evidence that you showed in the podcast, suggest they're going into a hostile environment. And how are you supposed to learn in an environment that you feel is hostile to you? And what is actually being done to challenge those views? And I think, again, it's another situation where it's like, well, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the working class and the poor children that have to change. They're the children that shouldn't feel like it's hostile. They're the children that have a chip on their shoulder. They're, chil- they're the children that shouldn't be angry. They're the children that should be happy to just be bussed wherever. But that's never turned around and we're never, we're never asking educationally advantaged people or just other people, well, why do you feel like that? And how do you think your attitudes affect other people and the children who are attending the same school as your child or potentially might attend the same school as your child? How do you think your feelings about them, your negative perceptions of them, your discrimination towards them because of where they're from, which let's be absolutely clear, is no fault of their own. <laughs> they were born into a poor or working class family. They just happen to live in a working class neighbourhood. And I'm getting a bit sick and tired, actually, of us always suggesting that the people that have to change are are us and not them. And I can't see anybody really thinking that they need to get a a grip of this kind of cultural problem. And it's interesting because here in Brighton, we talk a lot about race and ethnicity, which is incredibly important. We talk a lot about sexuality. We talk about gender Again, all of those things are important discussions to have. But when do you ever hear a discussion about social class? And if you look at the data and if you look at the outcomes for kids and and adults in this city, you know, social class determines a lot of those outcomes. But it's like we can't have that discussion. I think the other thing is that, you know, we've had discussions, Curtis, with various people about this. And we've been told very clearly that once you take away a school, you can't replace it. You know, so when they took away that school, they took away the school knowing that that community would never get a school back. And I think that if it's if it's right that it was a kind of combination of negative perceptions about the people that lived in the community, a lack of bravery or imagination in terms of what it was actually going to take to keep it open, a lack of willingness to really confront more middle class parents to say, or to force some middle, more middle-class parents to send their children to that school, and a kind of botched PFI contract, if those are the reasons why that school shut, I mean, that says something pretty breathtaking about the people that made the decision. It's almost like they had a hot potato, and they fumbled it, and they dropped it on the floor, and no one thought, well, what, what are the implications of that in 5, 10, 
15, 20, 25 years' time. Because essentially, it's a form of social vandalism. I mean, it's just a form of, you know, taking, ripping something, a, a central institution, a key institution, out of a community and not not having a plan about what happens over the long term. I mean, I suppose it's kind of indicative of a lot of what we see in policymaking, but it's pretty breathtaking to me that that is actually what happened. Going back to what you started with, this idea of the connections both with transport and just the sort of community connections, it does feel like no one really thought about that. No one, and maybe like you say at the start, maybe they, I, I think there were some buses running, and maybe right at the start they did. But again, it connects to that idea of politics being so short term that they just thought about it in the short term. They just thought, well, at some point in the near future, I won't be working in this organisation or I won't be a councillor. It won't be my problem. So we just make sure there's, a, there's enough there to make it work for the next couple of years. And, and then it's not, it's off my plate. And, I, you know, if you look at sort of the history of that, it just looks like, like, like you said, people are almost trying to pretend that school never existed. It's like this whole idea that, you know, every time we mention it to, to people, um, people are sort of like, oh, why are you bringing that up again? Oh, yeah. I know. Like we're, like we're, I don't, like we're committing some terrible social faux pas. <laughs> like it's really strange. It's like, well, we need, you know, I very much get the attitude from some people. It's like, well, we need to be, we need to be positive and we need to move forward. And it's like, yeah, but you fundamentally don't understand then what it means to have a school shut. Like, what are you telling a community when you shut its school? You're telling them that you don't think they have any interest in education or chance in education. And actually, you don't think they do either. Because actually, their education doesn't matter to the people who it actually should matter to. That's the message you're giving. And you're also putting our pupils and have put our children, young people into a situation over the last however many years, since 2005, where this big issue around catchment area is, is, is connected to this. So we currently have a situation in the city where there is potentially another school that's going to end up like Comart. Because by kicking this problem into the long grass, by not having the conversation about social class, by not having the conversations about or not doing the things required to mitigate some people's advantages in education, you're in the same place. You're in the same place just decades later. And I don't understand how people didn't think that that potentially could be where we'd end up. Um, and so you're you're in a situation where another school potentially is at is at risk or at threat of closure, and that the grapevine, the education grapevine in the city, is you know awash with tales about what might happen to this particular school and and its likelihood of closure. So that will be another community <laughs> losing its school because we're not willing to say to some schools, you need to take less pupils, and to some parents. Having a good social mix in schools is good. It's good for your children. It's good for all children. Like, I'm not being funny, but grow up. Well, that, that line from Andy Schofield sort of towards the end of the programme where he was talking about the sort of results of them doing a bit of a share, skill share and having some kids coming over to Vandine. And, you know, amazing that you know not only 
Did it support kids who were coming over from Whitehawk who got really good grades? But the kids in Vandine also benefited from that. But, you know, thwarted again by, you know, the stigma that we've heard so much about and that we heard about in that report. I mean, it's, you know, when I heard, when he told me that, I mean, I was just so shocked that, and it's something that your brother Ryan talks about, you know, you know, that, uh, in fact, when he heard that bit of the program, his reaction was like, I mean, I, I won't repeat it, but it was anger, as you would imagine, you know, like, how, how did that school end up closing? It's a failure by everyone in power. Yeah, it is. And I think what's, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the, the programme is, you know, and as I kind of alluded to this earlier, but hearing those children say those things, it's like out of the mouths of babes, isn't it? Like children will say things that adults just won't, even if they're thinking it. And I and I think that it's incredibly, you know, enlightening <laughs> that even kids of that age have absorbed the messages that poverty equals laziness, fragility, vulnerability, you know, not being that clever, not being that committed to your education, not being that capable or able. And it's scary to think that children, such young children, ha- have have absorbed and, and are able to repeat those kinds of messages. It, I think to me it just shows how, how incredibly strong they are in our culture, how very class-ridden we are. And, and just how those attitudes get passed on at such an early age. Because we think kids aren't really aware of any of this stuff. But I said to you before, you know, my son, when he was, you know, he said, he said, I knew when I was 11 that rich kids went to rich schools and poor kids went to poor schools. And he was talking about the state school system in Brighton Hove because he went to state school. You know, he's not thinking about, pop, you know, private education. He's thinking about state schools. Um, and and they know that, but the adults in the room aren't willing to have a, a frank and open and honest discussion about the fact that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think connecting back to something else you said um, a few minutes ago about, you know, what reception did the kids get when they moved over to all those other schools? And then if you think about that report, the local authority would have been well aware of the stigma, the negative stigma and perceptions towards kids from Whitehawk. They knew that. I wonder what support they were given. I wonder what, I mean, I'm not aware of any extra support that was given to sort of integrate kids from Whitehawk into schools where they know there were going to be kids there who basically thought they were coming from a dodgy estate or were stupid or living in a swamp. I know it's interesting because I know it's something that Bobby talks about because he was at, I think, Cardinal Newman when those first group of kids from Comar moved. And I know that in that interview we we did together for the festival a couple of years ago, he was talking about what that was like from his perspective as of another as another pupil in the school and the sort of reaction the school had and the parents had to this group of kids move go, going to Cardinal Newman. And similarly, we have you know I've spoken to a, a local parent at the Crew Club whose child was at school at that point and was moving to another school in the city. I think it was Vandine, but I can't guarantee that. But they had an open evening where parents who had concerns could go and talk um and some of the teachers were there and the head was there at the time I, you know and she was saying that they were the parents were very openly saying we don't want these children in our school and she said she wished she had had the courage at that point to stand up and say 
I am one of those parents. But she she said she just didn't know what to say. Like she was she was just so shocked by people's attitudes and their willingness, because they thought everyone around them was like them, their willingness to be very publicly critical and discriminatory against essentially children <laughs> coming to a, a state school. Um and she was like, if I had my time again, if I could go back to that moment, I would have stood up and said, hang on, I'm the parent of a Whitehawk child. She was like, but to them, she was like, because I like wearing linen and stuff like that, they, they just didn't identify me. They didn't see me as not being one of them. And they felt absolutely free to say some terrible things. And she was like, and as a parent, knowing my child was going to go into that, it really made me, I was, she, she was like, I'm genuine, I was genuinely worried. I was shocked. I was upset. But at the time, I just didn't feel like I could say anything. And I wish I had. Oh, it's just sickening to hear that. It really is. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I feel like episodes three and four are sort of, they're so damning of the system. You know, they really highlight, and especially in Brighton, this idea, and we've, we've mentioned this a few times now, of it being this progressive city full of liberal people who want to support each other. And, but that is not the case when it comes to our school system. And that's got to change. That's got to change. And that's where we're going with future episodes. You know, what does it take to change that? Um, what pressure can we put on? Who can we bring with us? All of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm really intrigued to see where this goes does that stigma still exist i mean i'd hazard a guess it does in some areas it doesn't just disappear unless work is done it doesn't disappear in the place you can see it interestingly is in newspaper reports around subsequent changes and parents giving comments to reporters where they essentially say my children won't be safe at that school with those kids i mean that's essentially what they're saying um and it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating to kind of read and to see that there is a longer leg, you know, that that those attitudes didn't go anywhere. They're still very much present in our city. We will do what we can to try and change that. But as you also said, and we do keep saying, it is not just our job to change this stuff. You know, it shouldn't be. <laughs> we haven't caused it. No, no. no. It, it, it astonishes me every time people say... Well, give us the answer. (laughs) My favourite, my favourite thing, and actually I I should have mentioned this earlier, oh, to have the privilege and advantage to say, we must just look to the future. Let's, let's not think about the past. (laughs) I mean, God, if I only wish I didn't have to worry about the past. Yeah, that is a luxury in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah. Drawing a line, moving on. Yeah, I know. It's such a cop out. It's such a cop out. We're going to wrap this reaction episode up. The next episode, episode five, is going to come out on Wednesday next week, and we're going to be hearing all about what happens to Ryan, his brothers, Carly, me, my brother, and some other people after we all left school. So make sure you're subscribed, or you can access it on our website. That'll be launching on Wednesday next week. Thank you for listening.